Well, morning, everyone. You doing okay? Great. Happy Sunday. How many of you came in shorts, but now you're a bit chilly, now you're in the air conditioning? I always have a debate what to wear on a Sunday morning. It's very tricky. I stand paralyzed in front of my wardrobe. But um, anyway, good morning. Great to have you here. Um, who likes the idea of a sweaty barn dance? Yeah. <laughs> there was an emphasis on the sweaty part, wasn't there, in that announcement? But um, that's going to be a lot of fun. You know, I'm the kind of guy that I can only dance if I'm at a barn dance because I need instructions on what to do. Like, if I danced in church, all it would do is release joy kind of the joy that well, you're laughing at me, not with me. Um, so <laughs> anyway, go to that man dance. It's going to be good, but bring a towel. So guys, welcome to Sunday morning. Uh, it's good to be together. And uh, we're carrying on this series called Love Matters, which I- I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's been rather good so far. I think it's been, it's been all right, hasn't it? That's kind of British understatement. I think it's been good. It's been helpful. I, I feel like I've learned a lot week to week. Um, I've had to look into subjects that I've maybe not looked into before and feel like I've certainly personally been kind of growing as a result. And just to say, as we say every week in this series, um, we're looking at this subject of, of love and sexuality and relationships, but very much from a biblical point of view. So if you are here and maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus This is not our attempt to impose a biblical morality on you or your lifestyle. This is a message for people who are saying, I am a disciple of Jesus, and the Bible is the blueprint for life for me. This is a message for for those of you that have made that decision. And so if you're here as a guest, I just want to say you're so, so welcome. We love having visitors. And it's always a a huge privilege to have guests here that don't yet know Christ. Um, really, we are here to serve you as best as we possibly can. And so you're so, so welcome here. And I would just encourage you, if anything from this morning piques your curiosity, find out who Jesus is. Uh, it's the most important question that you can ask in your life, is who is Jesus and what does it mean for my life? So you're welcome. Thanks for joining us here this morning. And um, we're, we're carrying on this series today by putting the spotlight on marriage. That went down well, I thought. Um, so <laughs> it's too late. It's too late now. Um, so, so yesterday, uh, numbers, numbers of us were celebrating a wedding. It was a great occasion. There was a wedding that happened in here. Uh, Matt and Charlotte got married. Um, Matt has actually been our lodger for the last 18 months, and it's just been uh, brilliant, slightly messy, but brilliant having him live with us. He's, he's brought a lot of joy to our household, and we're actually really sad to see him go, but also glad that he's now married. And whenever you go to a wedding uh, as someone who is married, I, I always reflect on my own marriage, on my own wedding day. You kind of remember your vows. You remember where you were and what happened. Uh, this, is, this is me and Carol up here. Uh, we... I know, I know. Still got that baby face. Um, so we, we've been married for 21 years. Actually, Carol corrected me, said 21 and a half years. So we are married for 21 and a half years. Uh, we got married on the 6th of September, 1997. And uh, this is us. I am I'm sporting a rather large corsage that was meant for my grandmother. Um, I was meant to give that to her, but Grandma, if you're watching, I'm sorry. That was yours. And um, we, we had a, a great day kind of celebrating uh, 21 and a half years ago. And I've got to say, I am, I'm incredibly grateful for my marriage. I'm incredibly grateful for my marriage. I'm incredibly grateful for my wife. And I love her more now than I ever have done. 
And I'm incredibly grateful to God for that. And I would consider, aside from Jesus and salvation, the gifts of my wife and my children are the two greatest gifts that God has ever given me. And I am, I am a changed man because he gave me an incredible wife. And she has sanctified me, helped me, changed me, um, challenged me, inspired me, modeled for me what Jesus looks like in so many breathtaking ways. And uh, in fact, even as I was uh, just preparing this morning in the first service, she sent this little text. And uh, she just said, let me just find it. She said, I love you. Go for it today. I'm praying for you. God has good things to do today and is going to bring hope, freedom, and vision to the church. I love you. Double kiss. <laughs> double kiss. Double kiss. I'm going to take that double kiss later on. And, um, but the, the, the Bible says this in Hebrews uh, 13 verse 4, that marriage should be honored by all. It should be honored by all. God has a high view of marriage between one man and one woman. Marriage in the Bible is a, is a breathtaking partnership that is meant to be full of love and loyalty and life and joy and change and adventure and the presence of God. This is the, the biblical picture of marriage and we are to honor it, every one of us. And I think often because we are so aware of the context we live in, where marriage for many people is actually incredibly hard. And for some of us in this room, it's not just hard. For some of us, it's actually been destructive. It's been painful. And I, I realize in a room like this, there are a hundred different stories of how marriages have been and how they've played out, whether you are uh, married currently or whether you have been divorced. We're actually going to cover uh, the subject of divorce and remarriage in a few weeks' time. And I think because so often this is such a complex issue, we can shy away from actually painting a God-glorifying biblical picture of glorious marriage. Because we're aware that sometimes our experiences don't match up to our biblical expectations. And so sometimes we can be slightly apologetic of actually opening the Bible and saying, God loves marriage. And this is meant to be a joyful gift from God. I want to say to you, if you are walking through marriage right now that is challenging or is painful, or you have walked through and is painful, there is always hope in Jesus. And one of the things that we won't do in this church is guilt or shame. Scripture says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that there is a difference between shame and conviction? When we feel ashamed, it's believing the lie that there is something wrong with me. But actually, in Christ, we have received a new identity. And God says, no, no, you don't do shame and guilt anymore. Conviction, yes, that leads to change. You are now a living embodiment of hope that God can work in any situation. No matter how challenging, no matter how pressurized, Jesus is the answer. And so I want to say to you, if you're walking through a pressured marital situation right now, there is hope for you in Christ. There is hope for you in Christ. And I would also say... Ask for help if you are struggling. And don't ask for help when you're lying in the ditch. You know, so many of us look after our cars better than we look after our marriages. Every single year, you MOT your car so that it won't end up in the ditch when you're driving it along the motorway. You look after it. You give it regular maintenance, regular TLC. And yet so many people only ask for help in their marriages when they're lying in the ditch. Ask for it before that moment. Just get alongside people and say, listen, we are working through an issue. Can you help us? Can you pray with us? Share. 
And there is something about God just removing the shame from talking about challenging things that we walk through. We need one another. The person you're sitting next to, you need them. God's put them in your life to help bring hope into your situation. And I just want to say this as well by way of caveat. My aim today is not to play Dr. Phil. Okay, so I, I'm not going to do that. So I am, uh, you know, I am not a trained marriage counselor. I'm not a sex therapist. I'm not a behavioral psychologist. And neither do I have a perfect marriage. So my job today is to preach the Bible to you. That's my job. There are other people that have skills that maybe you need and you need to connect to, but I'm not going to play Dr. Phil. I'm going to preach the Bible. Is that okay? Great. Okay. So without further ado, why don't we turn to Ephesians and chapter 5, and we're going to look at keeping the fire alive in marriage. Now, I do know one preacher who actually got booed by his own congregation just for reading this passage. So hang in with me as we read it. I'm going to explain what it means as we go along. So here we go. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine. Amen. (laughs) That's good advice right there. Should we do an appeal right now? Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. There's a salient piece of advice from the Apostle Paul. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit singing psalms and, and hymns and spiritual songs amongst yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks to everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washing by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so first, how do we keep the fire alive in marriage? Well, we need to understand unity and mutual submission. There is a reason why I started reading this passage from verse 18, because verse 18 is the is the imperative in this set of instructions. In other words, it's the, it's the command out of which every other application follows. And it's this, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul commanding us to do? Be filled with the Spirit. That's the imperative, the command grammatically. Everything else that follows from that moment is called a participle phrase, which literally means an application of the command that he's just given you. So how do we be filled with the Spirit? Well, he goes and tells us, 
Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Make music in your hearts. Give thanks in everything and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I would suggest to you that an evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that in life, including marriage, we live lives of mutual submission to one another. You say you're filled with the Spirit, I will say, show me your marriage. That's what Paul is saying. It's great that you had a warm, tingly feeling in the meeting, but did you take that warm, tingly feeling into the warmth of your marriage? This is an application from the commands that he gives. And in Christian marriage, Paul is painting this kind of breathtaking and totally countercultural way of operating in Christian marriage, where actually we are living in servant-hearted leadership and, and loyalty and, and, and giving of ourselves to another person. In other words, says Paul, marriage is a competition as to who can get the lowest. It's gone really quiet in this room right now. <laughs> the picture he's painting is your marriage should look like the leadership of Jesus. Philippians 2 said he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. What does it look like to lead like Jesus in a marriage? Sacrifice. Submission. Giving yourself to someone else. Lifting someone else's needs above your own. And Paul then begins to tell us how this mutual submission in marriage works out between the husband and the wife. And for the wife, this is what he says, that wives should submit to and respect their husbands as they submit and respect the Lord. Now that word submit is an interesting word. We actually find it used of Jesus himself in Luke 2.51. You may remember the story where one day uh, Jesus' mother and father lose Jesus. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, that's a bad place to be if you've lost Jesus. They'd lost Jesus. They're on their way back home. They're like, who's got Jesus? Where is he? And they couldn't find him. And so it says they went back to the temple in Jerusalem, and there was Jesus teaching the religious leaders and the Pharisees and having discussions as a 12-year-old in the temple. And they're like, you know, we were worried stiff. Where were you? And he said, oh, did you not know I needed to be in my father's house? But then it says he submitted to his mother and father and went with them. That same word submit is the word that Paul is using here. In other words, it is not the submission of inferiority. It is the submission of a powerful choice to give yourself to somebody else. That is very important. Jesus didn't submit because he was inferior to his mother and father. He submitted because it was a powerful choice to place himself under somebody else. And that's what Paul is saying here. For wives, our, the, the role is, I give myself to you. I place myself under you. I'm mutually dependent. I'm soft-hearted. I'm not bossy or controlling. But I'm, I'm giving myself in sacrificial submission. But then Paul moves towards the role of the husband and says, Husbands, your job is to die to yourself and love like Jesus loves. Your job is to sacrifice and love your wife like Christ loved the church. In other words, husbands, your job is to die to your own selfish needs, die to your own greed, die to your own lust, die to your own selfish ambition, and to empower your wife so that she can be all that she can be in God. That's your job. How do I know if someone's being a good husband? I look at their wife and see if they are fulfilling their dreams. Because that's your job. Your job is to get low 
Your job is to empower because this is the kind of leadership that Jesus says we should operate in. He comes and he washes our feet. He comes and he nails himself to a cross. He he says, this is the kind of leadership you operate in. Not like those who lord it over with titles, but you come under, you empower, you lift up. Paul is saying, guys, your job is to sacrifice your life for the sake of your wife. And here's the thing, you always sacrifice for what you value the most. Really is quiet in this room. (laughs) What do you value the most? Because those are the things that you will sacrifice for. You know, you maybe sacrifice a bit of money so that you can get Sky Sports. You know, you may sacrifice a bit of family time so that you can play golf. I don't know, whatever it might be. But we always sacrifice for the things that we truly value. And here's the thing. God has given you the greatest treasure in your life, your wife. And Paul is saying, sacrifice for your wife. Love like Jesus loved and lay your life down. Someone once said that marriage is a death march. And it meant that in the most positive way. Your job is to lead and love like Jesus you know, I remember a time where I really didn't have this right, and I had this false view that what Paul is teaching here is that the husband is the boss and that the wife is the follower. That's what I used to think. I remember when we started to kind of court and engage and going into our marriage, we began to have this discussion about what a wedding day would look like. And for Carol, she really wanted an evening reception. Like she wanted like a boogie, a bit karaoke. You know, she loves a party. She's a natural extrovert. She like, loves being with people. And she, she'd been dreaming of this for kind of years on her marriage day. Now, I'm a natural introvert. I don't particularly like parties. I find them draining. And so the thought of that was like the worst thing in the world. And so I remember we had our first kind of disagreement, even before we first got married. And because I had this view of, well, husband is in charge... And wife kind of follows, and in the instance of a disagreement, then I have the trump card to play. That's what I believed. I made the decision in that moment that we were not going to have an evening reception, but we would have a normal reception in the afternoon, and then we'd get off to our honeymoon in the evening. And it, it really broke Carol's heart, because she had this, this dream, this thing that she'd been looking forward to. And because I had been seeing through the wrong lens, I hadn't been seeing through a Jesus lens, that is something I have had to repent for. Numbers of times. <laughs> I've had to, I'm so sorry. I, I got that wrong. You know, right at the start of our marriage, I got that wrong. I'm so sorry. Because actually the husband's role is to die to his own needs and empower his wife. This is what mutual submission looks like. It's a competition as to who can get the lowest. Nowhere is gender superiority being taught in this passage. Men, this is not a license for you to be a pig. Women, this is not a license for you to be a doormat. This is not what this passage is teaching. It's saying you are united, you are equal, you are one. It is celebrating the unity of a husband and a wife. I want to say too that the other crucial point in this passage is that it is about our oneness and unity. And to communicate this truth about our oneness in the marriage relationship, Paul uses one of his favorite metaphors. Paul loves a good metaphor. If you've read Paul's letters, he loves a good metaphor. And one of his favorite metaphors is the metaphor of the body. 
You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul there, he says, listen, you are like a, a body with many parts and each part does different work. And you know, the hand can't say to the leg, I don't need you. And the eye can't say to the mouth, I don't need you. God has put different parts in the body, but you need one another. And Paul's point there is, you are all different, but you are one. That's the point of that metaphor. And this is this very same metaphor that Paul is using in this passage. You are husband and wife. You are like a, a body and a head. And one without the other just does not make sense. You are different, but you are one. The point of this passage is not gender superiority or hierarchy. The point of this passage is gender unity in marriage. Whew, that just felt good to get off my chest. <laughs> He's saying, you are one as Christ is one with his church. So our husband and wife, there is this mystical deep union. He has connected you at the deepest level. Yes, you're different. You bring different things to the marriage, but you are now one. (laughs) So what does this mean? Well, it obviously means lots of things, but let me just mention a couple. Number one, how do you express this unity and mutual submission? Well, firstly, express your oneness through sharing everything. (laughs) through sharing everything. You're one now. This applies to all sorts of different areas in your life. So for example, for us, we made the decision very early on, we're not going to have my finances and your finances. It's going to be our finances. Because actually, everything that I now have is yours. Everything that you have is mine. And we share together. This is how we work. Actually, there is... No, no go area. This is everything is yours. I share everything with you. Communication would be another area. You know, I, I, I am an internal processor, which means that I think about what I want to say before I say it. I am married to an external processor <laughs> who doesn't really know what she thinks until she talks and then she discovers it. And so this is like two different cultures kind of colliding in one space. And, you know, I remember early on in our marriage, God saying, Phil, you need to actually share the things that you're thinking about with your wife. I'm like, really? That sounds dangerous. I I might disagree with myself after I've said it. You know, I had this kind of, you know, the kind of Moses version of communication where you go up the mountain and you get the word of the Lord and then you deliver it. Like, this is what we're doing. And God was like, no, no, don't do that. Your wife actually, she needs to know what you're thinking. You need to include her. You need to share your thought processes even before you're comfortable sharing them. Let her in. And so I did. And it works. (laughs) And she really liked it. And I thought, I wish I'd done this sooner. But we share, we communicate. You know, there's many studies that say actually quantity of time in communication is far better than quality time. I think for many of us, we think, well, we're going to have these kind of peaks in our, in our kind of calendar where we will really communicate. And those moments are important. You know, the, the holidays or the, you know, the, the days away together, they are really important. But they are no substitute for ongoing quantity of time, by which I mean you need to talk to each other every day. I know that sounds simple, but I'm amazed how many husbands and wives don't actually talk to each other. (laughs) You know, for, for us, one of the things that we do at the minute to make sure we regularly communicate is that we will walk the dog after dinner. 
Okay, so we'll, we'll eat our food, and then we'll go and walk the dog very often. And that is our moment just to say, how are you? <laughs> How's your day? What were your highs? What were your lows? Like, how have you been feeling today? What's on your mind? Is there anything that I can do for you? Uh, sometimes you, you haven't got much to talk about, and you're talking about the birds in the air or the football scores or whatever it is. Sometimes you, you start talking about heart issues. But the point is regular connection brings health to a marriage. One of the other things we decided to do is that we would decide to always go to bed pretty much at the same time as one another. Now, sometimes one of us would go to sleep far earlier than the other, but we decide we are going to go to bed together. Why? Because those so often are the moments where you actually connect and talk. I get worried when I hear about husbands and wives who have like three or four hours between their bedtimes. I'm like, when do you talk? When do you connect? When do you make love? When do you kind of have heart connection with one another if you're not actually regularly saying, we're just going to pause and just say, how are you? How is your day? How is your heart? Is there anything that I can do for you? You share everything and you communicate. It's so important. Second thing that comes out of this principle of unity is that we must protect our oneness in our disagreements. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> so the question is not will you disagree, but what will you do when you disagree? And one of the great lessons in life is to learn how to disagree, but to do it with honor and love. You are going to disagree. God has put you in a partnership where the other person is there for your own sanctification, which means that you are going to help each other grow, but very often that's going to be through friction. That's normal. (laughs) I won't do an appeal now either, but it's normal to disagree. But here's the thing. You will never have to submit if you agree about everything. And you will never have to sacrifice if you always get your own way. So you're going to hit these moments where you've got a decision to do what the Bible says, submit and sacrifice. Which means I'm going to give a little bit of my ground to build a bridge towards you. I'm going to take some time to build a connection and try and understand what you're saying. We're going to work at this together and we're going to do it with honor and we're going to do it with love. I mean, just to spell it out, what that means is don't swear at each other. Don't throw each other's clothes out the window. Like, don't call each other names. Don't make ultimatums. Don't bring back past sins from 10 years ago. Just don't do those things. That's not how you disagree with honor. How you disagree with honor is you seek to understand before being understood. You take some time to listen before taking time to speak. You make sure you take your defensive guard down so that you can hear with an open heart. You make sure you communicate with affirmation and affection, not with a kind of right hook. Learning how to disagree honorably is an incredibly important part of marriage. Words are very often weapons in a marriage. The question is, how are you using them? Protect your oneness. Secondly, you guys doing okay? Okay. (laughs) Secondly, reverence for Christ. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here is the truth. There is one person who is the most important in your marriage, person in your marriage, and it is not your spouse. It's Jesus. <laughs> he is the most important person in your marriage. And having him right at the heart, right in at ground zero of your marriage, is the most important decision that you can make. Because I tell you, he is called the wellspring of life for a reason. All of life flows from connection to him. 
It's the same in every area of your life. If you want to bear fruit, abide in me. I will abide in you. You shall bear much fruit to the Father's glory. How do you bear fruit in marriage? Abide in Jesus. Connect to Jesus. Scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, his laborers labor in vain. Here's the question. Is Jesus building your marriage? I'll suggest to you that a prayerless marriage is a vulnerable marriage because you need more than reliance on yourself to succeed. I know that I am not clever enough to sort out every issue in my marriage. I know I'm not wise enough, I'm not gentle enough, I'm not Christ-like enough to sort out the issues that sometimes need to be sorted out. I know I haven't got that in myself. And yet so many people live prayerless marriages and we cut off the very wellspring of life that has been given to us. Are you connecting to him? You can't do it on your own. One of the things that I just I loved about Carol when I first met her was that she just was so passionate for Jesus. You know, she as soon as you know Andy strummed the first chord, she'd be like, "Yes, Jesus." She was that. She was that woman. You know, I often say to our young people, "Listen, if you're looking for someone to go out with, find a person who's passionate for Jesus." Find the person who comes to the prayer meeting. Find the person who's just lost in worship. Find the person who's not kind of busy, kind of talking, distracted, but just can't wait to get into the presence of God. If you find someone like that, you've hit gold, my friends. Strike while the iron is hot. You know, and that's one of the things I loved about Carol is that she just had this, I knew that Jesus was more important to her than I would be. Here's the truth. No... Not every single one of your needs will be met, even by the best husband and the best wife. They will always disappoint you in some area. They will always fall short because there is no human being that can meet all of your needs or expectations. There is only one person who can. It's him. It's Christ. It's Jesus. You know, I remember uh, when we were first going out, I started this men's only prayer meeting for revival. And it was a very serious business. It It was men only. We're going to pray for revival. But somehow, Carol invited herself to the men's only prayer meeting. <laughs> and I thought, yes, this, I could, I, I, this could go far. <laughs> she had Jesus at the center. A few things just to look at. Firstly, just be ruthless about your own times with the Lord. I forget who said it, but they said, make an appointment with the Lord and stick to it. You know, you use your diaries for all sorts of things, but do you use your diary to spend time with Jesus? I think one of the best gifts in a marriage is that you can encourage one another to be in Jesus' presence, to say, how's your prayer life? You know, it's one of the things that we talk about most frequently in our marriages. How's prayer going? What are you reading in Scripture? What is God saying to you? How's it going? And sometimes I'll be like, I'm finding it a bit difficult at the moment, or I'm feeling a bit stale, or I just need a bit of fresh inspiration. And Carol, like, well, keep going for it. In fact, she knows that if I'm being a grumpy mare, if she sends me into God's presence, I will come back with sanity restored and having got God's perspective because she knows when I'm with him, I'm a better husband. And so one of the things that you've got to build into your marriage is that you have your own personal walk with Jesus individually, that you're spending time with him and work out how you do that in the phase of life that you're in. I think another key thing is praying together. Now, I've got to be honest, I'm convicted by my own words here because 
I have most frequently had to repent about us not praying together as much as Carol would have liked in our marriage. It's one of the things that I have had to most frequently say sorry for in the kind of 20 uh, or so years that we have been married together. And I recognize that that is an area that we need to grow in, spending deliberate time praying and seeking God together. And we do pray, but not often in uh, those kind of prolonged, extended ways that Carol has often wanted to. One thing that we have done since we got married was every night we pray together, just briefly. Just before we go to sleep, the last thing we do together is we just pray together. And sometimes it's 30 seconds. In fact, usually when I pray, it's 30 seconds. When Carol prays, it can be a little bit longer. And I have been known to fall asleep on occasion, <laughs> which doesn't go down well. But, but we made a decision. We, we want the last thing that we do together as a married couple is to say, this marriage is about him. And without him, we can't do this. And just that simple act of praying briefly together at the end of the day says, this is about him. And often it's just the Lord protect and bless our family, bless our children, pray for our loved ones. If there are any situations, we'll just quickly lift them to the Lord in prayer so that we are praying together. And something happens when you pray together. You get connected. You know, I haven't always got this right. I remember the first time that I tried to do a Bible study with Carol and pray, it was a train wreck. I mean, it was a train wreck. I, 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 <laughs> uh, we, we, we were young. I was about 21 years old when we first got married. And I was like, right, we're just going to spend the next uh, two hours and uh, we're going to read the Psalms and see what the Psalms have to say to us about the character of King David's leadership. And I didn't really understand why Carol then went slightly silent. And we had this prayer time where only I prayed and she was quiet in the corner. And afterwards, I was like, what was going on there? I, I was the only one praying. And she's like, she said, I just felt so intimidated by what you said. I didn't know that David wrote the Psalms. She's like, <laughs> I was in deficit right from the start and I just couldn't pray. And I just like, oh, Phil, you've been such a wombat. You've been such a wally. Like you just so missed the moment. And, you know, this is something that you have to do to grow. Pray together. And then thirdly, pray about your marriage. You know, just seriously, go to God about your marriage. Any issue that you hit in your marriage, go to Jesus. He is the answer. There have been so many moments in our marriage where we've hit a challenge or a pressure and we've gone to Jesus and he has answered Sometimes instantaneously, sometimes over a period of time. And, and you know, if you're in a marriage where maybe you, you're in a season where you're not as attracted to one another as you used to, go to Jesus. Say, Jesus, fill me with passion for my wife. He answers that prayer. When you hit a moment where you're like, you're hitting a conflict, go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know what to do in this conflict. Please, will you give us wisdom? He answers that prayer. Go to Jesus. Pray about your marriage. Let me tell you, the things that you pray about will be the things that are fruitful. So invest time praying for your marriage. Thirdly, spirit-filled marriage is sexual. It's a sexual union. Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So this idea of two becoming one was not first invented by the Spice Girls, but was actually invented by God. So 
God actually says, sex is sacred. Sex was my idea. This is a beautiful gift. The fire is meant to exist in the fireplace where it can burn brightly. And it's something to be celebrated. It's something to be enjoyed. It's something to be worked at. It's something to be talked about. Sex is a gift from God. And that is what Paul is reaffirming in this passage. He's saying, two become one. I was chatting to one of my children who will remain nameless, but um, I was just saying, did you know that there's a whole book in the Bible about sex? And they were like, really? And so immediately turned to that said book, which is called The Song of Solomon, and, um, and started to read it out loud in the lounge, which was a great blessing with much hilarity. And you know, here's, here's the thing. Sex is a gift. There's a whole book in the Bible on sex, and you know, I would encourage you to read it. Not now. I can see some of you already <laughs> put that Bible down. You're, you're already skipping ahead. Go home and read it to one another. But it's this, it's this incredibly kind of erotic kind of poetry story about Solomon and his wife. And in there, you, you've got all sorts about romance and sexual attraction, sex acts, arousal, climax, and favorite body parts. It's all in there. Go home and read it to your wife or your husband and enjoy. Sex is a gift from God. It's a sacred thing. And it's worth saying, I realize for many, the area of kind of sexual intimacy can be a real challenge in marriage and can be an area of real shame for many people. And there are many reasons why this can be a, a, a difficult or challenging subject you know, age and stage, young children, sickness, disability, past trauma. There are all sorts of different reasons why sexual intimacy can be a challenge within even Christian marriage. And as I said earlier, we must not do guilt and shame. In Christ, there is always hope. And I just want to say to you, if you're in a marriage right now where this is a, a difficult thing for you, there is hope. There is hope for help. There is hope for change. And one thing that I would urge you to do is talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. The likelihood is that someone else is walking through the same journey that you have. And there are people that can help you. Having said that, I'm also concerned that many Christian marriages, with none of those issues going on in the background, are still essentially sexless marriages. I'm surprised sometimes when you talk to husbands and wives how little sexual intimacy plays a part in the diet of their married life. And Paul actually begins to address this very issue in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians and chapter 7. And in, the, in Corinth at the time, this lie had begun to infiltrate the church that it was better and more holy for married people to remain celibate in their marriages. And so Paul begins to address this particular issue of sexless marriages in 1 Corinthians 7. This is what he says. Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. That's not a verse husbands and wives often quote to one another. 
Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a few things just to say from that passage that Paul is saying. Firstly, he says sexual intimacy in marriage is based on sacrificial giving. Our culture has so warped sexuality that whether it's masturbation or pornography or sexual self-interest, it is all those things put self at the center of sexuality. And that is a complete distortion of biblical sexuality. Here, Paul is saying the goal of sex within marriage is that you fulfill your partner's needs. This is sacrifice, servanthood. This is taking yourself out of the center and putting somebody else at the center. That's sexuality as God defines it within marriage. The most satisfying sexual intimacy is found in covenant relationship with one man or one woman to whom you've decided to give everything to. Again, it's servant leadership. Servant leadership shows up in the bedroom, folks. This is Jesus' model. And if I were using a baking metaphor to talk about sex in marriage, I would suggest to you that sexual intimacy is both a key ingredient and the icing on the cake. It's both. First, it's a key ingredient in that actually regular sexual intimacy is a vital part of nurturing a great marriage. It's a key ingredient. It's something that is there to help create a marriage that is full of joy and life in one another. It's not just a reward for everything else being hunky-dory or pressure-free. It's not just the icing on the cake. And I think more often for men, though not universally, sexual intimacy is a key part of how they feel loved by their wives. Men are often pretty simple creatures. It's also worth saying this, that sexual intimacy is also the icing on the cake in that sex is the fruit of a healthy marriage. It's a fruit of a healthy marriage. And more often for women, though not universally, sexual intimacy is a fruit of feeling loved, nurtured, pursued, valued, listened to, and loved by their husbands. It's a fruit. Do you know the reason that men court their fiancés in engagement is that you might do the same in marriage? Is that you might pursue your wife, that you might listen to her, that you might care for her, that you might nourish and nurture her to the best of your ability. Let me suggest to you that the best foreplay doesn't happen between the sheets, but happens in the rest of life. Don't expect to be casting over at nighttime if you're a clown during the day. I'm serious. Men, you cannot rock up to the bedroom and demand sex, quoting verses of scripture about you being the head. That is nonsense. And if that is your view of headship in marriage, you need to repent. Paul is not talking about a boss and an employee. He's not talking about a leader and a follower. He is not talking about gender hierarchy. He's talking about a unity that works because of mutual sacrifice. So the rest of life matters. Companionship, affection, Romance, empathy, you know, it means men, pick up your socks. It means do some washing up at least once a day. It means listen. Even when you feel like there's other things you need to just pause, just listen, just take time. It means public shows of affection. 
Might I just release everybody to give more public shows of affection? Hold your wife's hand in public. Wife, hold your husband's hand in public. It's important. It matters. Physical affection matters. You know, send each other cheeky texts during the day. I hope that if you're married, you should send cheeky texts to your husband or wife. If you don't, then today is your opportunity. <laughs> I remember once where this went horribly wrong. and um, <laughs> Not to put you off, but... <laughs> but uh, numbers of years ago, our kids were quite small, and uh, Carol took them to our soft play, which happened to be in our building in Newcastle. And uh, she'd just been chatting to her mum on the phone, and then she kind of hung up, and she's looking after the kids. Now, I was working in another office in the building, and so uh, she sent me a text, and it said this, do you fancy finding an empty room and getting naked? <laughs> now, that's exactly the sort of text you should be sending your husband or wife. And so she, but she was slightly perturbed because I didn't respond, I didn't reply. And so... A little while went by, and she's like, this is really odd. I, I thought he would have replied by now. And so, anyway, she, she was on the phone again to her mum later. She's chatting to her mum. And her mum's like, I think you sent me a text that was meant for Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she said, I'm here with your brother and sister, and I've shown them as well. And we've all had a really good laugh about it. <laughs> Carol was mortified. Absolutely mortified. But at the end, her mum did say to her, seriously though, it's great to see that there's still some spice in your marriage. Like, Come on, ka-ching. <laughs> the other interesting thing just to note here, and we'll just say this by way of conclusion, is that marriage is a window on a much greater reality. Paul finishes by saying, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Marriage is a profoundly prophetic union because it speaks of something beyond yourself. It points to a cosmic reality where Jesus, the head of the church, is united with his bride, the church. In other words, the marriage is about that. And one of the reasons to contend for a healthy marriage is that your marriage is one of the clearest demonstrations to the watching world of what Jesus really looks like. If they're looking for answers, they will look at your life before they read the Bible, probably. They will look at how you, your next door neighbor will look at how you talk to your wife as you leave in the morning. They, they will see if you put the bins out. They will hear the arguments or not through the walls. They will see how your children talk to you and how you talk to your children. They will see these things. They are observable. Your life is the first gospel that most people will read. The question is, is it good news? Your marriage is a demonstration of the gospel. And that is why your marriage matters so much. Let's stand together and let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Father, we just thank you today for your word. Thank you that it is life to us. Thank you that your word is living and active. And 
God, just today humbly, Lord, with all of our just awareness of our own need to grow, our own frailties, God, we come under the word of God and say, God, let this bear fruit in our lives. Let it bear fruit in our marriages. Let it bear fruit in our expectations and our hopes and our dreams. And uh, if you're married in this room, could you just, just lift your hands to the Lord just where you are? If, if you're near one of these guys, if you're not married, can you just put a hand on them? And let's just stand with every married person in this room. I want to declare over every marriage that what God has joined, let no one separate. What God has joined, let no one separate. And so today, Father, I just prophesy hope into every single marriage in this room. I prophesy life. I prophesy a new season of enjoying one another and enjoying God. God, I prophesy a day of fruitfulness and wholeness and the rushing river of the presence of God. Lord, I thank you that this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so I bless your marriage now in the name of Jesus. Anything that I have, I bless you with it right now in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who is walking through a valley in their marriage right now or is just walking out of a a destructive or a painful marriage. God, I pray hope and I pray healing and I pray restoration. God, I thank you that if it's not good, then it's not the end of the story. Your word says that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. And so I just speak a word over you. If you... This is an issue of pain. If it's not good, it's not the end of the story. Father, will you come and work with healing, grace, and power? And Father, I just want to ask, would you make marriages in this church a living demonstration to the world around that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is a living head, that he loves his church? God, put us on display so that people fall in love with you. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.